All right, so uh, we are um, in the book of Job. We are, we're wrapping up the sermon series today in the book of Job. Um, we're going to be in starting in uh, Job 19, and then we're going to wrap up in chapter 42, which is the last chapter of the book of Job. As you turn there uh, in your Bibles, I want to pray over us uh, this morning. Father, we bow before you this morning as your people, um, God, fully expecting uh, to hear from you, God. We desire for you to speak. And God, especially as we open the Bible together and read your words, God, we ask that you would speak to each one of us today, God, that you would meet us where we are, each of us individually. God, make yourself known. God, work in ways that, that there's no other way to, to, to explain, but God has worked in our lives today. God, we give you this time in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we are wrapping up the book of Job. Um, if you're just stepping in and haven't been here in the sermon series, um, we are looking at a, um, a sermon series on worship, which seems like an unlikely uh, theme to get out of the book of Job. We tend to think of Job as the man who suffered, and it's true, he suffered a lot. Uh, but when we take a step back and we look at the bigger picture of what's happening to Job, we see that Job's suffering really was initiated by an accusation that Satan made against him to God. And, and essentially Satan said to God, yeah, yeah, Job worships you because he has all this stuff. Take away all of his stuff, though, and he won't worship you anymore. He'll curse you to your face. And so really the book of Job is a question of whether or not God is worthy to be worshipped even without his stuff, his blessings, his working in our lives, is God in and of himself, just his character traits, is he worthy of our worship? And so we looked at the um, first couple of weeks, God's infinite wisdom, how God's infinite wisdom renders him worthy to be worshiped. We looked at God's power, his mighty hand moving uh, to create all that is in the universe and that God is worthy to be worshiped in his, in his power. And so today we're specifically going to look at God as the redeemer. So if you stop halfway through the story of Job around chapter 19, we're going to find a profound statement of faith from Job. Okay, right in the middle of all of his buddies trying to give him comforting advice that doesn't do anything but just make his, his pain and his agony worse, Job makes a statement of faith. Starting in Job 19, verse 23, listen to this. Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart grows faint within me. Now what an interesting moment in the life of Job. As he stops and he makes this proclamation, Oh, that my words were written. Little did Job know that God was writing this story down. But in the moment, right, I don't think Job was thinking, I hope God puts my story in the Bible as much as he was thinking, I hope somebody's paying attention to this. I hope somebody sees my suffering. I hope somebody is noting all that I'm going through right now, right? And you've been there, haven't you? Just want others to know how hard things are. 
Right? I, want, I want to know somebody sees me where I'm at and what I'm going through. And, and little did Job know that God was writing down his story. He says, oh, that my words were written. Now, it's interesting as Job begins to, to lay this out, he says, for I know something. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. So in the midst of all this, we're wondering, what's going on in Job's heart, right? What does he want God to do? What is he thinking about God? And he makes this statement about redemption, and it's not necessarily that he is looking for redemption as much as he's looking for a redeemer, a person to behold. I want to see God through all of this. Now, from here going forward, um, what happens is Job's friends, again, keep talking to Job. Hey, Job, here's why this is happening to you. Here's why God is doing this. And after about, I don't know, 35 chapters of this, Job's had enough, and he cuts off his friend and says, hey, enough. And this is where the other guy, Elihu, this other friend, steps into the store, and he begins to turn the attention off of Job and towards God. And then when we get to the end of the book of Job, chapter 38, 39, 40 and 41, this is where we saw last week, God begins to speak for himself. Then in chapter 42, we're going to look at today, starting in verse 1, Job is going to answer God now. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is a really helpful thing. So, so far as Job has cried out to God, God hasn't done anything to alleviate the pain. He hasn't done anything to change the story. All God has done is reveal himself to Job. Right? Chapter 38, 39, 40, 41. All God did was come to Job and begin to ask him questions like this. Hey, Job, where were you whenever I formed the earth and put it on its axis? Hey, Job, where were you when I created the oceans and I I said to them, you can only come this far? Where were you when I I set the universe in place and the the stars and 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 the planets in orbit around the sun? Where were you when I did all this stuff? And all the while, God's asking these questions. Job never answers him. Now, when we look at what Job says here, now after God has asked all these questions, it's a really profound statement because here's Job's conclusion. Here's what I know now, God. I know that you can do all things. What is he saying? I know that you are all powerful. Like I used to think that you were powerful, but now I know you are all powerful. You can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, if you've ever gone through a hard time, especially as a Christian, one of the questions that you want answered is why, right? Whether it's a struggle with sin, struggle with with some some form of suffering, a physical ailment, the loss of a a friend, a family member, somebody dies too young, we want to know why. Right? And I love how Job has not received an answer from God on why, and he's already concluded your reasons are good enough. Right? No purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, I know you've got purpose in what I'm going through. I don't know what the purpose is, but I know your purposes are trustworthy. God, I know 
you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And what we see from Job here is he begins to bow his life down in worship of God and his power. Now what Job is going to do is he's going to quote God. And let me explain this just so we can kind of understand. If you weren't here last week, this will help you out. So when God starts to speak to Job in chapter 38, he says to Job, he actually starts with a question. He says, who is this who darkens my counsel without knowledge? I hear somebody talking, but I don't hear any wisdom. And then he says to Job, I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to ask you questions. Answer me if you have any answers. If anything comes to mind, share it with me. So now what's going to happen is Job is going to quote God, and essentially he's going to say, now I know what you were talking about. Listen to verse 2, or verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. God, I remember when you said that to me. I remember when you spoke and you, and you said that to me. Now look at Job's response. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What he's saying to God is, God, now I'm starting to see you in your infinite wisdom. And the more I see your infinite wisdom, the more I see how much I didn't know. I thought I knew you. I thought I knew how the world worked. I thought I knew how human beings work. Matter of fact, I used to have a reputation as a wise man among my friends and among the people in my city. But, but now I'm starting to realize how much I don't know. And we see Job begin to bow down again in worship, not only of God's infinite power, but his infinite wisdom. But there's a beautiful phrase here I don't want to overlook. When Job says this, he says, you know, I uttered things I didn't understand, so I spoke like a fool. Things too wonderful for me. Now, every person in this room um, struggles to understand something about God. Okay, if, if, you, if, you, if you say, no, not me, I understand God fully, uh, or fully then I'm just going to caution you, you may be worshiping a false god. Okay? So the, the six to nine pounds of mush between our ears is not powerful enough to comprehend uh, eternity, right? That God can stand in one place, see the beginning and the end at the same time, right? He doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an end. He can see yesterday, today, and tomorrow from the same vantage point. Right, So we can't fully fathom who God is. Here's something to think about. If you're a Christian here today, you're in Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been made righteous. You carry the robe of Christ's righteousness, yet on a daily basis you struggle with sin. How can that be? Try to wrap your mind around that. Right? Am I righteous in Christ or am I still a sinner? I feel like both are taking place. And so... For every person in the room, there's, there are things about God you can't fully fathom or comprehend. Typically, two, two or three things will happen when you come to that place in your life where you, you realize, I don't understand this about God. Why is this happening? Why is he like this? I can't make sense of it. One, one response to that, and I see this in a lot of us, is we, we begin to shift towards doubt. Well, then God can't be real, Right? If I, if I can't make this make sense about God, then God must be made up and he's therefore not real. And so you struggle with believing God is real because you can't fully comprehend who he is and how his ways work. Another response that happens, and, and I've experienced this, is I'll begin to shift into frustration with God when I don't understand something about him. 
Why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this? Why are we going through this hard season? It would be so much better if things would work this way. And so when I don't understand something about God's purposes, sometimes I get frustrated. Anybody else? But I love where Job's heart goes. Now that God has revealed himself to Job, here's what Job says about the things he can't comprehend. God, the things about you I can't comprehend are too wonderful for me. You feel Job's worship beginning to well up? Job's saying, I love that I can't fully comprehend you. And the more I discover that I can't understand about you, the more wonderful I realize that you are, God. Think about that. Allow what you can't comprehend or understand about God to stir your worship of him, to to fill you with awe and to say with Job, you're just too wonderful for me, God. Things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. And we've talked all throughout this sermon series about the, the modern-day American church and how we have this God-in-a-box syndrome where we, we try to tame God down and, and systematically understand God in a way where he fits in compartments, right? And we've talked about that. Now, our hope for this sermon series and for our church is not that you would come to the place where you would open up the box and let God out, but that you would realize that God doesn't fit in your box, that are, that, that, right? Like, God is bigger than, than what I can systematically or categorically understand about him. Now, we're going to see today, that doesn't mean that he can't be understood or known, but just not fully comprehended. That God would show each one of us, listen, I don't fit in your box. You can't contain me in your thoughts. And what you can't understand about me is, in fact, too wonderful. There's a, a book that um, our staff is reading right now. It's a book by J.D. Greer called Not God Enough. The subtitle is this, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. And, and we do, we have a small God syndrome in American church culture. I want to read a quote from this book uh, for you to think on. These are the words of J.D. Greer. He wrote this about his own experience. He says, I am in part the product of a Christian culture that has fostered and promoted a small domesticated view of God. The Western Christianity in which I have been immersed focuses on the practicality of faith. We present God as the best way to a happy and prosperous life. We show how God is the best explanation for unanswered questions and the best means to the life we desire. Our worship services seem more like pep rallies accompanied by practical tips for living than encounters with the living God who stands beyond time and whose presence is is indescribably glorious. More like pep rallies with practical tips for living than an encounter with the living God who stands beyond time and who is indescribably glorious. These shallow glimpses of God are fine as long as our faith remains untested. Remember what was happening to Job? He was being what? Tested. His faith was being tested. And so J.D. Greer says, hey, a shallow view of God is fine as long as life never gets hard. 
These shallow glimpses of a God are fine as long as our faith remains untested, but they are utterly insufficient in the midst of serious questioning or intense suffering. Not enough. Small view of God will never satisfy. And then he goes on to say, but in the end, such a God cannot sustain faith. He cannot account for the complexities of creation or the mysteries of suffering. He'll never incite passion, devotion, or worship. He's too small. And then Greer will go on to quote uh, the British philosopher uh, Evelyn Underhill who says, a God small enough to be understood will never be big enough to be worshiped. A God who's small enough to be understood will never be worthy of our worship. So the answer to Satan's question, God, will Job worship you even if you take away all this stuff? Essentially, God, are you worthy to be worshiped whether you do anything in Job's life or not? Comes to this place in the story and it's answered with a resounding, loud, yes! That's what Job's saying. God hasn't fixed anything yet. Are you with me? God hasn't done anything for Job. All he did was say, Job, here's who I am. This is how powerful I am. This is how wise I am. And we see Job here in chapter 42 coming to his knees and worship God. I know you can do all things. Your purposes can't be thwarted. Who you are can't be fully comprehended, but that's okay because that makes me see you as wonderful. Verse 4, again, Job is quoting God. Job says, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's what God said to Job in chapter 40, 38 and 40. Job, I'm going to speak. I'm going to ask you questions, and as soon as you get an answer, stop me, and you give it to me. And question after question, God revealing his mighty power, Job had nothing to say. And now let's look at Job's response to this in verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust, dust and ashes. Now, that phrase, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, Job is talking about how he used to understand who God was. I thought about you, God, um, according to what I heard about you. I heard people talk about you, and I went, oh, that sounds right. That must be who God is. But now something's different, God, in the way I think about you. And what's the difference? I now see you with my own eyes. I no longer determine who you are based on what I've heard or what I wished you to be. Now I see you as you actually are. I see you with my own eye, God. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is saying, what I think about you, God, from what I've heard, has now been replaced by a true vision of who you are. Um, A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you know who that is, pastor, author, uh, wrote this. He says, it is morally imperative that we as Christians 
purge from our minds all ennoble concepts of deity. So purge them from our minds, all of our small views of God, everything about God we think that's not accurate or true, that we purge our minds of all ennoble concepts of deity and let him be the God in our minds that he is in the universe. It's from A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. This is the journey of the Christian. When you became a Christian, you had a view of who God was, right? And part of your view of who God was was accurate and true. If you look to God as a savior who would sacrificially die on the cross for your sins, that's true. That's an accurate portrayal of who he is. A God who loves you so much that he would take your place on the cross, that's a true view of God, right? But then if we start adding stuff to that, who only wants me to be happy? Well, then we begin to have a skewed view of God, right? A God who only wants me to be rich. A God who only wants me to be healthy. A God who only wants things to go my way. A God who only wants to answer my prayers all the time, right? We begin to create this false image of who God is, and over time as Christians, that gets replaced through the testing of our faith with an accurate view of God. That's what's happening for Job. The story started with Job being a man who feared God and turned from evil. So it wasn't that he didn't know God, it's that he didn't know God accurately. And so through Job's suffering, God is purging from his mind all ennoble concepts that Job might see God in his mind as God actually is in the universe. What a gift of grace for God to do that for us. That should be our deepest longing as, as Christians. God, I know that I, I don't fully see you as you are right now. Correct that. Fix that. Refine that. Purge my mind of concepts that aren't actually reflections of who you are, God, that I might see you as you are. And then did you notice in verse six what happens when we see God as he is? Job says, I heard of you uh, with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now that sounds like a pretty rough phrase, right? I despise myself, I am nothing, and I repent in dust and ashes. Here's what's so cool about the story of Job. And, and to fully understand this, you gotta understand a little bit about the Hebrew language. So this word that we translate from the Old Testament into repent, you can also translate it into the word console or comfort. Now those, don't those seem like strange concepts to bring together in one word, repentance and comfort? Because in any other context, right, repentance leads to what? Shame and embarrassment and jail time and, Right? Anytime we get honest and humble ourselves and say, this is me and my dirt and my weakness, who I am when nobody's looking, in any other context but the gospel, that doesn't lead to good things. It certainly doesn't lead to things that are comfortable. Yet in the Hebrew language, these concepts are combined in one word. As a matter of fact, in Job chapter 2, we read that his friends come to him to comfort him. It's the same word. And here's what we're learning through the story of Job is that when we truly humble ourselves before God in worship and repentance, we, we see ourselves as nothing before him, right? We find comfort in his mercy and we find consolation in, in his acceptance of us. So repentance before God leads to consolation and comfort. And those two, those two terms do belong together, don't they? 
Matter of fact, I think Job is saying, listen, there is no safer place in the universe but to be humbly bowing before a holy God in confession and repentance and saying, woe is me. I am not. You are. And Job is finally finding comfort in the presence of God again before God has fixed a thing. Before God has changed a thing. Job is finding comfort and consolation through his repentance. I just want to make a note here because the story's about to turn in a good way. Job's heart bowed before God in worship and his repentance happened before God does anything. Okay, keep that in mind. Before God does anything. Here's why that's important. We've now answered the question, God is worthy to be worshiped whether he does anything or not, right? Whether he answers my prayers or not, he's good, worthy to be worshiped. Here's what makes it doubly sweet. And still, right, and still God works and he acts and he moves and he redeems and he heals and he saves and he forgives and he loves. Why? Because that's who he is. Okay, so here's what's gonna happen. Look at verse 10 with me. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Do you remember what Job's hope was at the midpoint in the story? My redeemer lives. I just wanna see him. And God revealed himself to Job. Job saw his redeemer with his own eyes. He bowed in repentance and worship, and now God moves. And what a beautiful portrait of redemption, right? See, sometimes I think we think about God's redemption in our own stories like it's, um, it's kind of a remodel, a fixer-upper, do the best you can with what you have kind of thing, right? And some of us feel that way. We're like, well, this, this is the best God can do with me. Maybe one day I'll be worthy, but man, with my past, with my rap sheet, with all that I've done, if the people in the church found out, <laughs> they'd kick me out. And we have this, 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 this skewed view of who God is as though he's this God who comes in and kind of restores and fixes and mends, and that's not who God is. When God redeems, he restores completely. He makes it, listen to this, better than it was before. Right? Why? Because that's who he is. He's a redeemer. And so while it's true, God is worthy to be worshiped, whether he does anything in my life or not, he still acts in my life. Why? Because that's who he is. Did you know that God loves you? I know, hold the phone. He loves you. Not the church folks sitting around you. He loves you. And listen, and it's not because you are lovable. It's not. That's good news. Here's why God loves you. Because he's a great lover. He's good at loving people. Think about it, right? Why is God merciful towards us? We ask for forgiveness one day and then we trample on his mercy the next. Why would God forgive us? Here's why, because he is merciful. It's what he does. See, while God is worthy to be worshiped, whether he does anything or not, right? It's doubly sweet. It's doubly amazing that he does what? He works. And now we see him according to his purposes and plans, stepping in to redeem Job. 
we won't have time to unpack all this, but we read the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. That almost sounds like, oh, if we pray the right prayer, then God's gonna restore everything. God told Job to pray for his friends. That was God's idea. God's not paying Job back. Oh, you're finally praying for your friends. I'm gonna bless you. No, God said, here's what I want you to do, Job. Now, if this is who you think I am, go pray for your friends. And so Job did. And God steps in and he restores and redeems everything. And it's better than it was before. You know, it's kind of a risky move. Because if you think about it, God finally has Job where we would presume he wants him, seeing him as he is. And the danger is if I bless this guy again, he might drift right back into what? Taking me for granted, forgetting who I am. Did you know that God takes that same risk in your life? Do you know that in the same way God is writing down Job's story when he didn't even know it, God is writing down your story? Did you know that? Your story is being written down in eternity by God. And the question is, have you come to the place that Job is at where you realize, God, you write a much better story than I do. I'm, I'm gonna bow and surrender. I'm gonna quit telling you what to do. And now I'm gonna bow before you and say, God, your purposes can't be thwarted. What you desire is better than what I desire. God, write a better story with my life. Maybe some of you are there today. This is the first time you've heard that. Maybe some of you, like I have at times in my life, are still running to a false sense of comfort in the midst of suffering. You know, in chapter two, Job's friends come to him and they're trying to comfort him. And then in chapter seven, Job says, man, my couch and my bed, they don't work anymore. Essentially what Job is saying is binge watching Netflix at the house, it's not bringing me any comfort anymore. Why? Because that's what we do, right? We, we try to go to the quick fix. I want comfort now. And we run to things like food or you know, substance abuse or sex or these things that bring us immediate comfort. And Job says in chapter seven, it's not working. Then in chapter 16, he looks at his friends, he goes, and you guys are lousy comforters too. So where did Job actually find comfort? He found it in repentance and worship. He found it in the presence of a holy God before God ever did anything in his life. Job discovered that seeing God's glory is better than hearing God's explanation. I don't think Job ever got an explanation. Job saw that seeing God's glory leads to repentance and worship. And, God, and Job discovered that seeing God's glory leads to redemption. And I want to leave you with some questions to think about. Um, we've got a packed house here this morning. I have not even can pretend that like I know your stories or where you are, okay? A lot of folks in here I don't even know see him for the first time. And by the way, I'm so thankful you're here. I really am. But I want you to think about this. What are you right now longing for from God? Like if we bowed to pray right now, what would you ask for? Are you longing for God to make sense to you? God, help me understand. Why is this happening? Why did you make me this way? Is that what your greatest longing is? Or maybe you would ask God to fix something. Are you longing for God to fix something maybe inside of you right now, something that's broken? God, take this away from me. Or maybe it's a relationship you're in. God, fix this relationship. That's what your greatest longing is right now. Or maybe your greatest longing 
right now is for God to take something painful away from your life. Here's the bottom line question. Are you longing more to see God's redemption or to see God as the redeemer? And what we're learning from Job is the greatest thing that you and I could ever receive from God. Listen to me, this is it, is for God to show himself to us. To see him with our own eyes, that which we've only heard about. Right, so whatever your struggle is this morning, doubts, pain, suffering, whatever you're going through, like God sees it, okay? He's not, he's not blind to those things. But God knows the greatest gift he could give you would be to show himself to you that your heart would bow in worship and repentance and find true comfort. And to trust like Job did, God, your purposes can't be thwarted. Your plan is better than my plan. You're writing a better story than I'm writing. Listen, we're gonna end here today. I think this is a good, a good kind of summary of the book of Job. And I think this is where it becomes practical for each of our lives. We have to ask ourselves the question, who is the God in our minds? Is the God in your mind the same God who rules the universe? Is the God in your mind the same God who created everything that is? Is the God in your mind the God who breathed life into existence and without him there would be no life? Is the God in your mind one who loves you so much that he would send his son to die on a cross in your place? If your God in your mind is anything other than these things, you have a much, much too small view of God. And he wants to replace that with who he actually is today. I want to pray for us now as our worship team comes up and our, and our prayer partners come forward. If you um, have anything going on in your life today and you want somebody from our church praying over you, um, our prayer partners stand at the front and they'll also be at the back. They'd love to pray with you this morning. Um, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you just realized that, you didn't even know it, but you've not come to that place where you personally have trusted in Jesus and what he's done for you, listen, come talk to one of our prayer partners. Let them talk with you and pray with you about making a decision to become a Christian today. For the rest of us, maybe we would stand to worship God together to allow whatever small version we have in our minds to be replaced by who he actually is. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. God, that is your greatest gift to humanity. You don't keep yourself from us. And God, we confess that our perspectives of you are often far too small. So God, this morning, would you replace, would you purge from our minds ennoble concepts of who you are, ideas about how you should act and did you replace these things with who you are, Father? I pray that like Job, many of us here today, maybe some of us for the first time, could come to that place where we recognize that when we encounter the living God, we leave changed. Father, could we see you this morning, not just as one who has the ability to redeem, but could we see you as the redeemer who lives? Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.